You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where... We share our knowledge and sometimes painful experience, not just with the tech we use, of what it's like to be a rules-based investor and where we end up with some Q&A-based um, questions and answers as we are trying to make this a listener-driven uh, show. So if it's the first time you're tuning in, welcome. It's great to have you here and we look forward to our journey together. As usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to Moritz. Good morning. Hello, Niels. Hello, Jerry. Great to be back. Yes, yes. We're overcoming the tech challenges slowly but surely, so great to have you here. Let me uh, quickly just remind for people who may have missed uh, last uh, week's episode, we... Um, we now have the ability for you to leave a voicemail to us. Um, if you go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash voicemail, you should be able to uh, very simply leave a voicemail. And uh, if it's nice, <laughs> then uh, we'll try and bring it on air uh, and uh, yeah, get some more interaction uh, from uh, from you listening to our conversation each week. This week, just as a quick market wrap, but I mean, it was really driven by, um, you know, the currency war declared by China in response to uh, Donald Trump and, and, and other things. Uh, Ray Dalio was out this week with uh, another article, um, you know, raising some concerns for sure about this relationship, what this might lead to and i guess it's really this escalation of tension between the us and china that again was it at center stage uh this week um where uh you know the quote unquote safety of government bonds was top of mind of investors um and um even though you could say i mean for the us uh, for sure there hasn't been a new high in bonds compared to 2016 and 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 and, and no new low in yield just yet um, but it does seem like kind of the sentiment in the market has uh, hit a new uh, extreme. And and I remember a few weeks ago, I asked both of you if you wanted to buy a 100-year bond or 99-year bond at 1.2% or something like that. And of course, you didn't. Um, but uh, there was a nice tweet this week um, just showing that 100-year Austrian bond um, in the last 12 months, and it's gone up uh, by 80% in price, like like uh, really looking like a fang stock. Uh, uh, so, um, so it is quite extreme out there, even with negative rates, people are hoping to, to buy these bonds and, and sell them, you know, at higher prices to, to someone else. So with all that action in mind, uh, Moritz, great to have you back see how your portfolio is faring um uh yeah we haven't heard we haven't heard anything the last few weeks about how you're how you're enjoying the ride at the moment <laughs> always enjoying the ride but yes you're right i uh, didn't hear anything of you for the past um two weeks um which is something i hated i missed you guys but uh, apparently my portfolio didn't because i've been on quite a good run uh, the past couple of uh, of days and you know the, the last fortnight essentially with 
you know, gold moving higher, have substantial long position in gold, um, the bonds. I mean, I've, you know, repeatedly said that it's the gift that keeps on giving, keeps on surprising every week and every day, but uh, it is what it is. So the longs are firmly in there. Um, Bitcoin's coming back, uh, emissions sitting there, made good money by being short the pound against the dollar. Um, good P&L by being short the energy markets across the board now. So, um, you know, all of that has added up to um, uh, to about six and a half percent positive in July and um, and and up already one, one and a half percent in August. So uh, quite happy about that and uh, out of the red numbers for this year. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? That's great. Good to hear. Um, I would say our week was, uh, you know, has been in line with what we've seen the last few weeks. So clearly fixed income dominating the performance. Um, for us, uh, JDBs, J- Japanese government bonds, was really the standout this week. Uh, even though, I mean, you think about how low the yields are in, in Japan, but there's still something to be squeezed out of those trends, uh, apparently. So, uh, so we were benefiting from that. Gold, of course, shined uh, this week as well um, and made a nice contribution. Energy, as you said, prices under pressure, which is uh, good for our shorts. Um, equities clearly struggled, um, so the long positions were were hurting us in the US and Europe, um, but uh, we're short Japan, so so that was good. Um, currencies, um, yeah, British pound, the big uh, high flyer for us as well, and the rest of the uh, currency complex really saw some small losses, but um, uh, yeah, solidly up for the month, uh, for the year, uh, and of course, I, I you know, we don't want to be we don't want to be too negative of this uh, on this uh, podcast, of course. But like we were saying uh, at the end of two thousand eighteen, that you know these drawdowns, uh, as painful as they are, they don't continue forever. Uh, I also want to say, you know, as as great as these run ups are, they don't continue forever. So, I th- I think at some point we're going to see some cons- consolidation in the markets. And my main point here is just to to say to investors, I mean, we don't know when these strong run-ups occur, and that's why you need trend following in your portfolio at all times. Um, on the other hand, there's nothing to be concerned about when they do occur. And I just, I think it's important to to remind ourselves of those extremes, both the bad ones where we need people to hold on to to the idea of trend following, but also be be mindful that, you know, the trees doesn't grow into, you know, continue to grow. So we need to be cognizant of that at least anyway jerry maybe trend following on equities will continue to grow into the skies how was how was your week oh it's a good week uh it's been a good period um on the bad stock day we had some nice moves in gold that sort of helped us in bitcoin so the diversification it's been crazy gold market uh every rally i mean every break has sort of not lasted long so that's been a nice move uh some of the currencies uh seeing new highs in turkey uh, shekel uh india and russia kind of sold off i guess at the same time i had a good position in china before the big up day i was able to find pretty much the only bond that got crushed this week so that's a material position for me in the italian bonds i read something about something going on there and the next thing i know it 
Yesterday was a pretty bad day for the Italian bonds, but uh, mixed bag in stocks that is you don't see if you just ride these indexes sometimes, but uh, some are going up. I mean, on some of the days where the stock sold off, uh, some of my individual stocks made new highs. So, uh, you know, it's just crazy. And, uh, but it's a nice period, and it seems like that uh, the bonds are really just in a crazy place. You know, I remember the night of the U.S. election, November 16, it was a big sell-off, and we sort of got run out of our bonds and then got short, globally short. And then uh, all the articles uh, from CTAs and from, you know, non-CTAs sort of talking about, well, the CTAs have made a lot of money long bonds, but now that we're in this obvious kind of trade of being short the bonds and rates are going to rise, they're not going to make it uh, as much money if bonds go lower as they did as bonds went higher. Here are the reasons. It's the contango or backwardization or something. And, you know, it just uh, reminded me of how that uh, was so obvious, such an obvious trade getting uh, long the bonds at the high, short the bonds at the highs, that it's so hard to be contrarian. And, you know, you're just saying, okay, great, let's just follow our systems. And that's just all we can just, I can ba barely do is just follow the system, follow the trend. Now the bonds are short. That's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Uh, but it was, but never in my mind was I saying at the same time, oh, this probably won't work. It's not going to mean anything to me as it relates to my position. I'm just going to follow my rules. But uh, it just, I got, you know, get caught up in it as well. Like, okay, let's, I guess we won't make as much money on the short trade. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really against uh, historically the obvious trade. It, you know, it doesn't exist in my opinion. I mean, very true. And also, I think a lot of people at the time, I mean, certainly when bond or yield started to rise back then, um, a lot of people were calling. Um, you know, for this to be the, the big change. Um, and as I said in my intro, we haven't made new lows in yields in the U.S. So you could argue that the 35-year interest rate cycle still holds because the, the high was in 81. That's the last high we had in yield. And, and so far, the low is in 2016. So that's exactly 35 years. But who knows? I mean, with what's going on right now in the world and everybody is kind of trying to to outdo the others in terms of uh, negative yields, uh, certainly in, in our part of the world, um, who knows, maybe we will see a new low and and the cycle extends a, a bit further. But, you know, again, making predictions about these markets is hard and it's certainly not easy. It gotten any easier in the last few years with the, um, um, at times, controversial uh, participation of uh, authorities in setting market prices. Um, so, yeah, interesting stuff. I got caught in the same bond trade, Jerry, the same as you. Um, it's the Italian bond. Uh, Italy is calling for a new election, the 44th since the end of the Second World War, which is kind of like, you know, an average time of one and a half years per government that they have, and then they re-elect, which, which is funny in and by itself. But, uh, you know, it's this fantastic country, which I love, but, you know, they just have a new government 
every one and a half years and their bonds are massively more volatile than all of the other developed market bond markets. But, you know, appropriately sized, not a big problem. Um, but interestingly enough, we got information from our brokers that they will be increasing the margin requirements on the Italian bonds in light of the, or in light of the, um, the upcoming elections and what volatility that may, may bring with it. So interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Jerry, um, so an exciting week continues to be pretty exciting in the markets. What about in the sort of the uh, fin? What do you call it now? Fin tweet or whatever the uh, the world is? Social media, Twitter, financial insights from a lot of good people actually on Twitter now a days. Oh yeah, still my favorite thing to do. Uh, but it's a pretty quiet week for me. I got busy or traveling a little. So, uh, but as we talked about before we went on, Marco. Uh, had some interesting CTA thoughts. Um, it's just kind of funny to, and a chart attached with some moving averages on it. So I don't know what this means. And I think he could just call us up and say, you know, what's your position? You know, <laughs> you could get a lot more intel. Some of these guys, they, I think Marco is particularly accurate, but some of the other ones are less accurate. And I have no, we, we are always mystified as to how they come up with CTA entry and exit points and things like that. But, uh, Marco says this week, the risk from CTAs is low as the S&P is stuck between key levels typically watched by the group. CTA traders may start selling when the index falls below its 200-day moving average. So market is, I think rightfully so, uh, trying to anticipate what CTAs are doing. It's a lot of assets and leveraged positions uh, based upon low vol sometimes that can uh, give a different impression as to... uh, if you don't use the ATRs and the volatility to kind of figure out what the CTAs are doing. Uh, but, you know, with the vol targeting and as volatility picks up, the selling that needs to occur and then the buying that needs to occur when the volatility slows down, so it's probably a good idea for people to kind of uh, spend some time thinking about what the CTAs are going to do. And uh, it's good and bad because my trailing stops are long-term and far away from the market. So I have to sort of sit there and suffer on the minus 700 uh, in the Dow days. But then, you know, sometimes it rallies back, but it's kind of a pain in the ass. It, it, it puzzles me sometimes to hear these big banks and, and, and well-known and, and they get a lot of press, not just uh um, you know, Marco, I think it's JP Morgan he works for, but there's also people from uh, Nomura, et cetera, et cetera, that spend a lot of time trying to tell the world about what the CTAs are doing. And I'm just thinking they, they a lot, lot of them, and I don't say specifically these two guys, but a lot of them always come back to say, oh, yeah, but if it breaks down below the 200-day moving, moving average, you're going to see a lot of sellers selling from CTAs. Well, all I, all I would say is that if, if CTAs were using that simple of models that it would be as easy as saying, oh, yeah, 200-day moving average, then you're going to see CTAs getting out. I mean, we wouldn't have spent 45 years at our shop uh, to figure that one out. So I think people have to you know, uh, understand that what we do today is a little bit more sophisticated uh, than just looking at these obvious, um, you know, well-publicized uh, numbers. And therefore, I, yeah... I think it gets a lot of press, but I'm not sure it's really that accurate in terms of information. 
Um, that's my opinion anyways. I agree with that, Niels. I, I read it and then immediately after that forget about it. It's kind of like, you know, this entertainment is interesting because we're interested in systematic trading and CTA type of trading. And so every every time there's anything in the news about it, we you know we pick it up and want to see what it is. But I'm I'm on your side there with those bank published uh, market analyses on on you know where the market is, where the CTAs are, how short gamma the street is, what that means for vol targeting. It's kind of like reading the tea leaves to a certain extent. I'm pretty sure. And you know the the content gets produced because banks are also active in the marketing game. You know they they need to put stuff out. I'm not saying that they willfully put, you know, things out which are incorrect, but, you know, we, you need to take it for what it is. I, I don't think, uh, you know, it, it has a lot of accuracy to it. The other thing I don't like about that uh, part of it is that for many, many years, I think a lot of these institutions were very negative when it when you talked about trend following and no, I mean, it doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe, I don't know, eight, ten years ago, they all came out and saying, oh, yeah, trend following, we can do that and we can do it really well and we can do it very cheaply. So come along with us and, and we, we'll, we'll, we'll do it much better than the people who've spent the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, working on this. And unfortunately, a lot of people believe them. Um, so they end up buying a lot of these, um, you know, replicators. Um, but they and they may get it cheaply, but they, you get what you pay for and, and therefore the performance doesn't look great. It becomes part of the industry uh, and, it, and, and a big part of the industry. So it drags down the uh, CTA indices performance as well, which means that people looking at that think, well, you know, these CTAs really don't do very well. Well, I think, again, it's driven by the fact that you've got players in there, large players, um, who just make, uh, make things too simple. Um, for commercial reasons, uh, so they can attract large AUMs, but it doesn't hurt the investor. And I'm just hopeful that investors really see through that. You know, look at the net return. Don't look at what they cost, whether it costs you 50 or 100 or 200 basis points. At the end of the day, it must be what you get in return for that investment. Um, and I bet you that these indices are not near close to the difference in cost uh, compared to people like you know, the firms we represent and other of our peers, uh, there's a big difference in my opinion. But of course, as I've said before, even with managers, size can become an issue and uh, you lose performance uh, at some point, in my opinion, when you go for size. And uh, so people need to watch out for that as well. I think to a certain extent, Niels, the interesting thing about this, I believe, is that it gives us an opportunity to uh, to outperform those benchmarks yeah, and those, sure. you know, say naively constructed CTA type of models. I mean, when I see them and there's now billions of assets linked to those type of strategies, which trade, say, you know, 30 to 50 markets, but only the most liquid ones, right? They're not highly diversified, at least not in my opinion. Mm -hmm. They're missing some, you know, important ingredients. And then they trade according to some academic paper that just buys, you know, like if, if the one month performance has been positive, you want to be long. I'm not saying per se that that is always a you know bad thing to do, but I believe it's possible to outperform on those type of systems and do something that is that is better, um, producing a better return, maybe with less risk, but you know, say higher risk adjusted returns for okay, a higher fee, but it gives us an opportunity to outperform against our peers, which which I think is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Jerry, we. Um Clearly had a lot of thoughts about your uh, tweet there, so uh, maybe you have other things we can dive into. So I guess I was uh, drinking some uh, wine one night and I just started tweeting 
thoughts coming out of my head. It's always kind of a dangerous thing. So I'll, let, I'll read these tweets, and you can just, uh, you don't even need to be gentle. Just give it to me. Let me know if you, what you think about this. Uh, uh, since the outliers that drive performance are so rare, one must lose, one must use loose, less specific rules that capture many trades that are small winners and losers in order to have the requisite sample size. A set of rules that is able to choose only the best trades can't be statistically legitimate. The more accurate your system becomes, the less reliable it can be. Do you think I, we're I going like to that. give you a hard time on that one? I mean, <laughs> on the, <laughs> that's kind of like what we're saying all the time. I think we're, we're, we must be drinking the same wine, Jerry. So uh. good wine. It must have been a good wine. Yeah. Well, one uh, got a lot. I got a lot of love from other people. Yeah. Uh, one guy, one person did ask, uh, "Can you explain a bit more about less specific rules?" And uh, I said, oh, yeah, I should have said less fit to historical data. But he sort of, I think he got my point. So, and there were some people who disagreed, but uh, I do think that, you know, we want to evolve, we want to get better, but we don't want to get too better, too much better, because uh, back in the day, you know, the way that I heard, I, I learned was that, uh, you know, it's okay if your system has some C-plus trades to go along with the A-plus trades. So it's got to get those C-plus trades in there so you can uh, have something that you can rely upon. I, and this is a bit of a stretch, right? But I think directionally I'm okay with this one. That is if you know the, the movie Moneyball, right? I mean, he didn't select, you know, the, the, the best players. I mean, he selected a, a, a section of players that were, you know, mediocre to a large extent, but they had a specific function on the team. But collectively, they did really well. And I think it's the same thing to some degree in terms of what we're trying to do. Um, and what we've often said uh, in our conversation is that, you know, sometimes good enough is good enough because as soon as you start being too clever with things, you you actually put more risk into the future of your of your system, of your performance. So I think that you should drink more wine and send more tweets like that, Jerry. <laughs> it's always dangerous to drink a lot of wine, but uh, it is a lot of fun. So I had one more. Um, oh, yeah, this is one of my favorites, I think, and I don't know. I always know what I mean in my head, and then I write it. I'm so proud of it. But not always. It doesn't age well, uh, always, but... Uh, this was another one that I'm kind of interested in. Uh, a trend-following strategy causes the markets to lose some of their inherent characteristics. The return of a market is replaced by the return of the strategy. There is no edge in the market, per se. The market is, is a tool to express the trading the strategy's edge. Uh, so some people disagreed with this, and it basically revolved around the idea that and I guess I'm talking obviously about a back test, and it people disagreed that uh, if you choose the wrong markets, you know you're not going to make as much money. You can't really separate the markets and your systems from the outcome. You know, obviously your outcome is what you've chosen in those two regards. But I do think, from a trend-following point of view, uh, most people are believe that the performance of the markets historically over the past 20 or 30 years of your back test might not be what that market might do in the future. And it's best to look at 
what the average trade was over all the markets, over all the data, to say that's kind of what I expect in the future from each individual market. Uh, corn and yen may have been my best performance on the back test, but uh, I don't expect that in the future. And then I, if I wanted to optimize the system for each market, I don't expect that to be what each one of those markets will be, what the optimal parameters will be for each one of those markets in the future either. So uh, trading all the markets the same way is something that we say a lot, but sometimes I just sit around and think about what does that really mean and what are those implications? Thus, these tweets. I um, I read this tweets, uh, Jerry, and, and the one like the one observation and the one comment that I would make is, what is the market? You know, if the market were everything that ever got issued or traded on an exchange with all the things and all the stocks that go bankrupt and you keep them yet where they're not in the graveyard then that to me is a market that's that's the benchmark but if the market is the s p 500 that's already that's already a thing with an edge right because it is a system that systematically buys stocks that have been going up and it just disregards all the ones that have been going out of business so you may say that the s p 500 is already something with edge in it compared to the market, if the market were everything that ever got traded in this world? I mean, I think, I mean, I think we all agree that um, you need to treat uh, markets in the same way because we don't know what the future is. I think that that makes sense. But I also think that when yes. it comes to market selection, you have to apply, and I think that goes with anything or everything we do, regardless. I think you have to apply common sense as well, meaning when you start looking for markets to trade, I mean, if there is a market that just doesn't trend, um, would you even doing the, would you even do the research on it? Probably not. But I think it for me it leaves one question that I'd love to hear your opinion about. Just going off track a little bit from the tweet, maybe, and that is, what if you have a model um, like many people do? Um, but what, for, for whatever reason, that particular way of dealing with momentum doesn't work on a particular sector. Let's just say that, you know, stock indices and bonds doesn't work uh, that well, but the same model works really well on all the commodities, for example, or currencies for that matter. So the question for, for you guys, would you... Um, just trade all the commodities because you get a lot of diversification currencies and leave out the equities and fixed income? Or would you try and find a way to trade those two sectors that doesn't work with this particular uh, model in a different way and just combine it? Or would you just leave them out? Oh, sorry. And then the third option would be take them in, and but then that hurts your performance. Sorry. So, so leave it out trade them differently or stick with them and see your performance go down significantly hurts the past performance right may not may not necessarily hurt the future we don't know that sure we don't know yeah that. yeah we so don't know but that. no leave them in i'm i'm in the camp of leaving them in and trading in them the same way as all the other ones yes and i think that's the correct answer i don't you shouldn't split up the sectors just like don't do it like uh, i've done it like okay thanks for this good system I'm looking forward to trading these new systems and parameters, but uh, 
how did it do in the currencies? You know, don't ask. <laughs> don't, for God's sakes, don't ask how it did with the shorts. <laughs> so you just close your eyes. Don't ask these bad questions uh, <clears throat> and uh, go forward because it's just like Moritz said. Uh, the back test is the back test. And a fundamental tenet of trend following is uh, you can't predict the future and this sorting is irrelevant. But then I would also, uh, I know you didn't mean this to be part of uh, the, pro the issue, but, uh, but honestly, given that question, uh, I would be very concerned with it, did the system that we're talking, you're talking about, did it overfit the historical data in those other markets? That, that good performance in the other sectors is something that might not be reliable. And I kind of have run into this before in that uh, at some points in time, stock trends, the single stock trends or indexes too, were so good that you had to be very careful how you're waiting in your back test to stocks because what those parameters that fit the stock trends the best were so awesome and so good that it would create you would start trading uh, the other sectors the same way and the stock performance was way too good and so you need to be careful uh, you know that overfitting that historical data in the stocks would make you choose systems that you know were a little too curve fit so it's a, you know it's it's tough i think uh when you do the back test you know weighting the different markets uh and having the back test reflect great performance for one sector or two sectors can be give you a false impression. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised by your answer. I think that's what I expected, um, and I'm sure our listeners as well. But I think you bring up a good point in, in answering it, and that is this is exactly the same as the issue with the shorts because when you do your, when you do your analysis on a trend-following system, you will find... Uh, at least for medium to long term trend following systems that most of the profits come from the long side and but it does that mean you should uh, not trade the shorts uh, in our opinion uh, no i mean you need to take it uh, both ways so to speak uh, maximize the diversification so good stuff i remember looking at uh, <clears throat> the grain markets i don't know 5 years ago 10 years ago and they weren't profitable i don't think they've gotten profitable since so just one of those things uh we're all we we sort of talk about how clients need to look at things in a longer term point of view and how short term does it mean a lot and i think that goes for the back testing as well you don't want to kick the grains out because they they haven't had any uptrends in a while and the longer these markets and sectors go without nice big uptrends 50 100 atr moves the more their historical performance deteriorates and this is, I think, another thing that makes it so difficult to be a smart person, a person who is interested in uh, research and evolving and finding out good ways to trade. Um, it makes it, you know, it's very difficult to sort of say when someone comes and says, let's improve the shorts, let's improve the grains. You know, there's kind of like philosophical rules in place where you say, oh, I wish I could, but I can't. And, and most people are like, well, I can, and I will. And that's where I think they get off track with, you know, a lot less robustness 
And the rest of us who we sort of suffer through this robustness uh, sometimes is it definitely looks like you can fine tune these systems a lot more and evolve, quote unquote, a lot more than uh, we, we, I say we can. You know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty set on pretty much sticking to what, the way I've been doing it for a long time. And it just destroys your creativity sometimes. It brings back quite well the point you made earlier, Jerry, and that is a few years ago, a lot of people were talking about how it would be impossible to make good profits in bonds now that the yields were rising. Well, this year, it's proven that, uh, well, they don't actually have to rise just because you think it's going to rise. And and secondly, bonds have been on fire and really been the, the main driver of performance uh, for most trend followers. So, uh, so yes, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And the way I've described the CTAs and investing in CTAs uh, before uh, is that, um, you know, CTAs are the only ones dumb enough to still be long bonds or only ones long enough, uh, dumb enough to still own stocks as the valuations got crazy. And this was you know, three or four or five years ago, valuations were crazy. So I mean it in a loving way that we can't predict, no one can predict and staying with the trend, sometimes the only thing that's going to work. And you need to have part of your portfolio that, that at least, you know, my opinion, 90%, but at least 10%, let's say, that uh, looks at the markets in that particular way. Absolutely. What else uh, went through your Twitter handle, so to speak, this uh, this week? So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on this... Uh, anti-private equity kick. I love making fun of private equity um, and all the, and it's sort of a hot area these days, especially in the U.S., uh, something that I think that I've read research papers on that can easily be duplicated by just holding small cap stocks. Uh, but so after the day after the big sell-off in the S&P, I tweeted, um, so I guess private equity was flat yesterday. I thought it was pretty funny. It probably was flat because they don't mark the market. That's right. That's right. It's a, the optimal strategy when it comes to uh, creating a smooth uh, curve, right? I mean, you set your own price and uh, and darn it, it's, it's pretty straight up, nice and smooth. And you can't charge higher fees. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. And I'm just jealous that I my clients can see the daily performance or monthly, you know, if we could report back two or three years at just the right time, life would be a lot easier. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, are you ready for a couple of questions? A few questions? Sure. Or do you have more? More? Okay, cool. We can are always we really go back going, to the uh, without mentioning Wayne. Is, is this what we're doing now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to give Wayne a, a week off. Okay, next time. Well, first question is from our friend Sam. And sorry, Sam, I missed this question when I uh, when we were doing it last week. Um, so, so we will definitely do it first this week. Um, okay, the email goes like this. Um, I'm back again trying to push you guys to the extremes. So I would like for you all to discuss what you think is the benchmark trend-following sharp ratio. It seems like one should expect... Uh, they are a 20% vol and a 10% return and drawdowns up to around 40%. Do you agree? Is this 
a solid benchmark to try and improve upon. Also, in your decades of collective experience, possibly a century, what is the max sharp you have seen from what you would consider to be a true trusted uh, trend-following trade trading system? I think it must be. I understand your unhappiness with the sharp, but let's use it since it's an industry standard. If you want to completely ignore it, please state why it's uh, why and its appropriate substitute. Let's start with that. There's a follow-up. Moritz, since you're back and have rested your voice for a couple of weeks, why don't you uh, run with this one first? Bull of energy. Um, okay, so the sharp. I think I've, I've said it before. To me, this is my personal opinion, a 0.5 sharp is good enough. You know, I can... I'm happy with, you know, 10 vol and 5 return or 20 vol and 10 return. That works for me. Now, but as far as benchmarking goes, um, what do I compare my trading results against? There's the, um, the Societe Generale CTA index, formerly the New Edge CTA index, which is, you know, essentially a basket of CTAs out there um, grouped together. There's the BTOP uh, 50 or BTOP 40, I think BTOP 50 index. Um, and, you know, those benchmarks I have looked at. Um, and I also benchmark my trading system against, you know, we call it some naive type of trend following strategies, things which, you know, I run, which are run um, without money being put uh, onto that. Um, but, you know, simple type of things like, you know, the 200 day moving average that we've mentioned, like a moving average crossover, those type of things. And I just want to see where, where I end up compared to those type of systems. Um, now, in terms of what is the sharp ratio that's good enough? Was that the question or could it be, could it be better than, you know, 0.5? I mean, of course, I mean, there's, there's years where the sharp ratio is 0.8 or 0.9, but there's also years where it's considerably less than 0.5. Um, as far as, you know, long-term trend following is concerned and, and, and the way that I trade, I don't, I don't see that system and I haven't seen any other people trading in that way, producing sharp ratios, which are consistently greater than say 0.901. I think that would be exceptional if you had a long-term trend following system to come up with a sharp ratio that's higher than one. I don't see that. Yeah, I don't care about the sharp ratio. Um, I think um, I think that Moritz, I think uh, Sam's question, uh, I didn't understand. Like, I think we've said uh, that uh, Moritz and I have sort of said that um, the average annual return, maybe the drawdown is twice that. So 10 would 10% return would maybe come in around a 20% max drawdown. You might get to 40 or 30, but I guess, but uh, hopefully not. And that's probably rare. But uh, so I think something like that is a more, a better replacement. Uh, you can trick the sharp ratio and people trick it all the time. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, Ball targeting tricks it because, you know, if you get out of a third of your position at all time highs, uh, then that portion of the trade has an infinity sharp ratio. So it that may be, you know, after 20 ATRs and the market goes 120 ATRs. And then after 120 ATRs, I have a 20 ATR drawdown and I make 100. Uh, you know, my sharp is not going to be as good as a ball targeting person who may have had much had much smaller profits on a particular trade but kept liquidating at close to the trade's max profit all the way up 
So I made a lot more money. I seemingly look a lot more risky, but it's just fake numbers. So I have no tolerance. And, you know, and I, but on a slightly different subject, you know, uh, Sam is one of our best listeners and he's a, he's a good guy, but he kind of crossed the line a few weeks ago by, uh, posting this picture of me like about 20 some 30 25 years ago when i was much younger but i was much heavier so but i think we're back we're back to being friends again sam but oh push us to the extremes that's where i like to live on all these extremes yeah so so i'll try and answer it in a slightly different way sam um for me i think i, I think i think this is something aqr maybe it was Cliff Asness saying it on a podcast or writing it in a in a summary that in the long run, all asset classes probably has a sharp around 0.3, something like that. And I actually don't think, even though we obviously right now don't think equities could could get down to that level of sharp, but it can when the you know once you expand your time horizon long enough. Um, and I don't think CTAs are that different when you look at the benchmarks. I mean, I, I really think that that's where we're, you know, we, we, I don't think we are as an industry better than 0.3-ish. Uh, but you shouldn't, but that's an average. It's an average of certain managers, and I don't think you should strive for being average. So, you know, with like Moritz, and, uh, you know, I, I would certainly say I think it is doable, and not easy, but it's. I think it's doable to get to 0.5, 0.6 net of fees. I mean, gross of fees, that difference, and keep in mind that all these equities are, you know, by definition, gross of fees. So, but net of fees, which we report, I think once you get to 0.5, 0.6, it gets harder. Um, and um, and obviously for a shorter period of time, you can get uh, above that. Um, What's interesting is that we do we we track the performance of the index of CTAs um, in three different timeframes. That just hits certain changes in our own system that is relevant, and therefore I have the numbers for it. But just to give you an idea, I mean the Barclays CTA index that uh, Moritz mentioned, um, and you know since 1984, November 1984, which is the time when when our program started. Um, the average annual return is 6.85%. But since 2006, just before the crisis, um, we're now down to 2.39% on average since 2006. But since 2013, so the last six years or so, we're down to 0.82% annual average return for that index. So you don't want to be down there. I mean, you don't want to be just an average index. Um, and therefore, you would also expect that the sharp ratios to be somewhat lower uh, nowadays than they used to be. But I still think for the good managers, you should look for managers who can deliver, you know, 0.5 uh, and above. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good uh, level. Um, I think I forgot the other question that you mentioned, if there were any other benchmarks. But I think uh, Mort touched on most of that. I mean, I think obviously for the three of us, the most obvious benchmark is the SOCGEN Trend Index, uh, which is doing really well this year. It hasn't done dramatically well uh, as such, but I think it's probably the most relevant index that we should beat, um, for sure. Okay, let me go to the second part of the question. Secondly, could you ever possibly conceive a situation where a portfolio has too much diversification? For example, I'm heavily into spot currencies. 
I'm in 40 different markets. If currencies are 25% of my total allocation, I still may be attempting to use 75% more outside of currencies on top of those 40 markets. I would like for you to push yourself, yourselves to the edge and think about the theoretical limit if it exists. So I guess that is, can we over-diversify is the key question, which I think we've touched upon before. So, um, But let's see what your thoughts are today on this on this Sunday in August, can we be over-diversified? No, I don't think you can. I'm a big, 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 massive fan of diversification. And I don't think there's a theoretical limit. Um, you know, there are statistics that will show you that the extra benefit of an additional market, the diversification benefit that you get declines with every market that you add. And I think that's true, right? But there's still a value add, so there is no theoretical limit. I think the limit may be operational, you know, uh, impact. You know, do you really want to be trading 7,000 markets, 8,000 markets, uh, if, you know, the 8,001th market, uh, you know, doesn't really add that much to your portfolio, maybe you want to skip that. But I'm, I'm far away from that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not in those, you know, type of fears. But... You know, what, what the way I do it is before putting a market into the portfolio, I look at the market, I look at its properties, the correlation to other markets within my portfolio, and I make an educated guess as to what that market is. You know, it's Belgian power or Nordic power. So, yeah, I like that market. It's not going to have lots to do with, you know, um, uh, my oatmeal position or or bitcoin so it's 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 very independent uh it adds diversification to my portfolio and really the more of those gems i can find really independently moving markets um the better it is and then i definitely want to put them in and i don't think there's a limit you know this diversification every little bit helps yeah i mean i agree and i think uh you know you have an edge uh, with your system and spreading that edge over lots of different markets, longs and shorts, there is no uh, over diversification. You know, the 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 best uh, CTA or systematic trend follower uh, with the best portfolio, the most markets, and the real true diversification um, is just going to always be over, you know, underperforming. Uh, underperforming because they're you know they just have this smoother return and so um, and maybe overperforming in bad periods because it's just closer to their average return so um, the ultimate system would be I make 10% almost all the time and some years I make 12 and some I make 8 and so uh, that's what the great diversification would sort of look like this hundreds or thousands of markets uh, I do think another problem happens to CTAs and personally me, you know, it, more so uh, in history than it, than now. But is the it, so I, I don't think it's over diversification. It's just uh, I've talked about this before, which you know, you've got a we've got a lot of markets that we trade, not not that many, but that are truly different. You know, cotton, coffee, cocoa, sugar, cattle, uh, emissions, you know, uh, palladium. And then we trade four energy markets that are 90% correlated. Or uh, European currencies that are 
very correlated or way too many bonds and the chart pattern is the exact same so we are we 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 like to talk about we trade 100 markets and and we love making money on all these bonds don't get me wrong but i think to some degree there is something going on with diversification that produces massive drawdowns because we're basically overtrading certain sectors and, and trading in markets that uh, there's just not a lot of difference between hitting oil crude and unleaded or the Swiss, the Euro and us, uh, uh, Krona. And uh, you can do the same with equities, you know, that it's great when you have these big uptrends, you're making lots of money, but they all go down at the same time. And so that I think is something that would needs to be addressed. I don't know if it's over diversification, but it's, it's not real diversification. Yeah, I like that. Things though, though, is that you know we can we can adjust the position size of those. We we know those markets are correlated, like you say, uh, you know the energies they are correlated, but sometimes they're not. I still want to trade heating oil and gasoline. I think it makes sense to have them both in the portfolio, but I don't need to like knowing that they're correlated. Um, I can adjust the position size of those markets and not trade them in the same size as corn. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm kind of in between what you're saying. Um, I don't necessarily fully agree, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, so on our side, we treat everything equal. So even within energies, we treat them the same. We're also different in the sense that we don't trade 100 markets. We trade 55. And we've never traded 100 markets. Um, and I don't see any evidence that the more markets you trade, the better your performance is. It might be smoother. I'll definitely, uh, I mean, it could be, but I don't think it's better. Um, but I do think that it comes back to what Jerry was saying. It's what are the underlying return drivers in your portfolio? And so clearly, you know, different commodities have different return drivers for sure. We know stocks have become more correlated over time. Central bank policies are more coordinated. So there is definitely in the financial markets, there is more correlation uh, than there has been before. And you need to have systems or risk management that takes that into account. But for me to sit and say, well, I should trade this market half size, this market uh, you know, full size, I think you're introducing some subjectivity that you know, goes against the whole thesis of being, you know, not knowing what the future holds. Um, that's just my gut feel. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't agree with my thoughts on this sometimes either. I mean, but I think uh, it's it's a it's a very interesting topic, and and uh, I agree though. You wouldn't necessarily make more money. I don't think there's more evidence that that there's evidence that increasing the markets makes more money, uh, and it's only about smoothing things out. That's mm -hmm. the only thing it's about. So I agree uh, with that. But uh, and then I agree that you don't need to trade a hundred markets. That's sort of the point I'm making, because you only have forty-five unique markets or fifty or something like that, uh, and that's my point. Don't trade all 100 markets, heating oil, crude, and unleaded the same size because it's still one market. Now, uh, so I like, I now follow the approach that Moritz takes, which is I, I understand that they're correlated. They're not always correlated, and it is worth trading all three at a reduced size. 
And so if I didn't want to do that, then I would just pick one and trade it. But I've said many times that, uh, you know, heating oil doubled January, Feb 84, uh, December 1990, and crude kind of set there. Silver doubled, silver had a, silver had a tremendous move in 1987, gold kind of sat there. And gold has had a huge move this year, and silver is sort of hanging out at the breakout. Platinum, that I consider to be almost the same as gold, it hasn't even made the breakout yet. So it can't, you've got to kind of say, I'm going to live with that because I'm a risk manager at heart, and I, they're kind of similar. And I'm not going to trade a lot of stocks. I'm not going to trade a lot of, I'm not going to trade Coke and Pepsi. That makes no sense. Okay. So I think that mentality needs to be brought back into the futures markets that we trade and understand that you're going to be wrong sometimes. Heating oil is going to double. Uh, crude is going to be the one that you want it to be in, but then it goes back to being 90% correlated. And I don't think there's there's any problem with trading, uh, splitting up your unit size for the energies into one-third crude, one-third heat, one-third unleaded, or something like that. I don't think mathematically or statistically, as long as you maintain that consistent approach going forward, that there's anything uh, wrong about doing that. Um, you don't have to trade everything the same size. It's really just a situation of when you make these decisions, just try to stick with it in the future and be more disciplined and consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think Sam just did it again, really. He got us uh, going on these topics, so uh, appreciate that, Sam. Well done. Um, all right, next question. Walter uh, send in a question. This is completely different. A question I don't think we've had before. Uh, more of a um, kind of behind-the-scenes question about running a trend following fund so uh, so i think it's good to um, to hear these kind of things so um walter goes big fan of the podcast listen to every week religiously i've got a couple of questions assuming your fund is denominated in us dollar how does it work when you trade contracts that are not denominated in us dollar i assume that if you're trading the german bund the only euros you need are to post margin for the bund do you hedge out this currency exposure? Question mark. What about any profits from the trade? Do you turn them back to into dollars when you get out of the position? Uh, also, when backtesting strategies in US dollars that trade futures in other currencies, I'm assuming I need to adjust the return to reflect the changes in price of the contract, but also the change in price of the currencies. Um, let's start with that quickly. Um, Mars, do you want to get a quick answer, or do you want? Yeah, me I can. To dive in? I, yeah. I, I, by the way, I like the question, Walter. Yeah. It's a it's a very good, very fair question because we're trading contracts in different you know currencies: the Hong Kong dollar, Japanese yen, Euro dollar, you know everything. Um, so what what happens here is the um, to, in in your example, you've mentioned the Bund. You have a US dollar denominated fund. Uh, but you're trading Bund futures on Eurex, which are traded in euros. So the Eurex exchange, the clearinghouse, will demand an initial margin from you, which you can either pay in euros or in um, in government bonds, which they accept. But let's just say you pay cash. The euros you give to the Eurex clearinghouse, um, you will 
get back one for one by the time you close the position. There's no exchange risk on the initial margin. But what happens is now over time, as you have the position open, it will produce what's called variation margin. That's your daily P&L. It settles daily, right? Up and down. So your account will either be, if, if you say, you know, you've, you've purchased Boon Futures and Boon Futures go higher, then your account will be credited with euros. If they go lower, lower your account will be debited with euros. This cash position does have FX exposure. And the way I do it is, you know, I don't want to be exchanging that back to my home currency um, every single day. That would be too cumbersome. So I have some thresholds whereby I allow the, you know, the different currencies, currency exposures in my fund or in my account to go up or down to a certain level. And once they breach that, I make a currency conversion back to my home currency and then start again. Yeah, makes sense. I think this. What about you, Jerry? Anything to add? Um, I think that's perfectly fine. I think I ignore it. Uh, but I think it could get out of control. So I think every now and then you need to look at it and uh, maybe readjust like Moritz mentioned. Uh, you know, and obviously when you're putting together your equation for your quantity that includes uh, ATR, tick value, you need to multiply that times, like I would multiply that boon times the price of the euro to sort of put it into dollar terms. Yeah, but it's not yeah. going to be perfect. You yeah. know, you're, there's a, uh, you're sort of faced with uh, the, the issue of um, if you theoretically make 10 ATRs, then actually you're going to make 11 or 8 when you PL all this out and you have this currency fluctuation. But I think I've looked at, we've researched it over time and it kind of sort of a break even. Yeah, and I would just add to uh, to these answers, Walter, that uh, if you do run a backtest, um, I mean, if you have the ability to do so, and I think it makes sense because you go back many years, that is to then have some kind of currency uh, exchange rate running also at the same time so that you can... Uh, you know, account for changes in currency uh, along the way because clearly the euro in the last 25 years has been, you know, fluctuating a lot versus the dollar. So there is, there is, and, and as Jerry said, you know, in your risk budgeting, you need to know whether you're trading a, a euro or a dollar, so to speak. It, it, it does make a difference. Um, so hopefully that gives you some, some of the answers you're looking for. You had a follow-up question which goes something like this. You guys talk about the paper that looks into the percent of stocks make up the most returns. I think we talked about this earlier, like a, there's a small, I think maybe Moritz had these statistics, a very small number of stocks that makes up most of the return. I've seen the paper and read other similar studies. I think the conclusion most people reach is that since it's such a small percentage and since it's hard to know which stocks are going to be the top, then the best solution is to index. Also, I've heard many people say that shortening is, or shorting, sorry, is very difficult since stocks mostly go up over time. But aren't these two conclusions contradictory? If most stocks fail to beat the index and a significant percentage of them fail to beat T-bills, then shouldn't shorting be easy since changes, or since chances are that you short a stock that doesn't even beat T-bills? Uh, brackets all of this before cost of course um 
Obviously, it isn't that easy, but I failed to reconcile the two conclusions. Would love to hear you guys' thoughts on this. This is probably more in your ball game because you, uh, well, certainly Jerry trade single stocks. Um, any any thoughts on that? So last week I we had a t tweet and we talked about it on this particular subject. And uh, so my solution, my I gave three choices to that that uh, paper, that fact that uh, you know one point it was four percent, and then the latest article last week that I mentioned was I think down to one point three percent. So my three solutions were index, or do you want to index? Uh, do you want to find the 1%? That seems hard. And then the third was, if you trend follow the stocks, almost all of them become profitable. And you eliminate that fact that uh, only 1% or 4% are profitable. In fact, uh, I quoted that uh, study. Oh, well, no, I asked my friend Eric, I said, uh, he, he told me he did a study of trend-following stocks that no longer existed. They went out of business, they were bankrupt, or got bought out. And when you trend-follow those losers, uh, you it, those markets make about the same amount of money as the stocks that still exist. So back to my quote, uh, tweet, my uh, tweet that I had uh, to, at the beginning of the show, uh, trend-following strips the markets of its characteristics, 96% losers, 99% losers, and turns them all into something else, the, it's a tool to manifest the edge of our strategy. So with trend following, none of those things are true. One thing I want to add to that is that those statistics, you know, that say, the return has been driven only by a small number of stocks. They look at the overall stock market. I just want to, you know, for practical purposes, say that most of those stocks, including all the pink sheets and all the super small and micro caps, you wouldn't be able to short them to begin with. So I believe to a certain extent is a theoretical exercise because those stocks are so small, so illiquid. There's no sec lending market on those. So you may think about shorting them, but in reality, you probably will not get a quote, uh, you won't, won't find a bid to hit to short that stock. Cool. But don't you think that jump, uh, yeah. if you just limited it to the top 500 stocks, I think the, the numbers would be similar. And I think, yeah, okay, fair point. Yeah. And, and, then, the, and then you're saying you can short those, right? I think the problem um, with, I mean, I'm guessing, but I think that you, you can have it both ways. It's not a contradiction because I think the problem is is this is this infinite holding period. So yes, if you're short, if you find the ninety six percent or ninety nine percent to be short, you will. If you can hold on to them as they make hundreds and hundreds of percent in a bull market, then finally collapse in two thousand eight, and they're vastly negative. And that's the problem. You can't hold on to these losing shorts. They're going to turn right. into lo losers. Uh, but you may have to hold them uh, and hold losing positions as they rally along with the elite uh, 1% to 4%. Yeah, good point. All right, I'm going to jump straight on to the last uh, questions from uh, Jeff as we're a little bit pressed for time on today's recording. Um, Jeff starts out, first off, your podcast is absolutely fabulous. Keep 
Please keep up the great work. The podcast is wonderful, informative, and brings non-professional investors like myself up-to-date information and ideas that I don't believe are generally accessible to non-institutional traders. Um, yours, uh, your podcast focuses on trading the systematic way with each episode. I love it. I can't get enough. Thank you for that. Of course, Jeff, with, a, with an intro like that, of course, we will take your questions. So, um your conversations spur so much thought uh, that only that simply cannot get from reading books on systematic investing. Um, for example, listening to Jerry Parker, Mr. Turtle himself, discuss how he struggles with natural urges to override his system even after 30 years of trading, questions whether his system works in the market, etc., etc., how parameters need to be changed to reflect changing markets has been absolutely eye-opening experience. Here's my question. On the podcast, Jerry discusses exits using ATR multiples as trading stops and how exit ATRs are larger now than they were in the 80s and 90s. Other than potentially larger drawdowns, what are the risk of using larger ATRs multiples for exits? That's one question. And then he goes on to say, I believe you, that's me, uh, stated that done. You do not use ATRs for exit outside of moving average crossover. What types of exits are typical are typically used? And can you point me to any resources that would discuss alternative types of exit strategies? Do you want to start off, Jerry, talk about your uh, view on ATRs? Um, I think uh, it's useful to use ATRs for sizing uh, your position and then use them as a multiple ATR for a stop loss. Um, and then use breakouts and moving averages or something else uh, once the trade becomes a profit. I think that um, when I first started trading, the ATR losses were small uh, and suboptimal from day one. And so now it's more optimal. Uh, I think the ATR, the number of ATRs you uh, used before you exit with a loss is somewhat correlated to your winning percentage. So if you have, uh, if you use one ATR, as soon as it's one ATR against me, I'll take a small loss. Your win percentage is going to be lower than if you use 10 ATRs, which is probably too many, but that's going to be kind of higher win percentage. So it's just give and take a little bit on that. And there's probably like an optimal level that you can uncover in a back test. Uh, and then I'm not sure that using a stop loss improves performance on the back test i don't think it does really it's not it's kind of a break even i think uh, you can use them or not use them it's one of these days you're going to get 10 losses in a row and wish you would have had a stop loss and then some but more frequently <clears throat> i keep getting stopped out and having to get right back in so it's one of those given uh, pros and cons it's kind of not a not a big deal probably yeah, I think actually just what you responded there also covers a little comment that uh, Jeff makes in his emails that talks about the whole point about being whipsawed and how if you use, you know, you know, bigger ATR multiples, uh, you could have stayed in with certain trades and so on and so forth. But I think Jeff, as you can hear from from Jerry, I mean there are pros and cons, and you know if you get ten losing trades in a row, then uh, using a ten ATR compared to a five ATR may not be such a good idea. So you know. You have to test. You have to find something you're comfortable with in that regard. Um, with regard to the the question about what we do at Don, I mean, we use 
a couple of different approaches. Uh, one, we we do use a breakout model, so uh, so clearly volatility plays a part. Um, but it's more reversals we're looking for as the trigger to also get out, so to speak. Uh, although there are obviously uh, you know possibly uh, quote unquote stops along the way, but then we also. I mean, so so, but there are also other ways you can look at getting out of markets. I mean, you can, uh, uh, you don't have to just use one uh, methodology. Um, whether that may be moving averages or other ways of um, uh, of exiting, um, you know, there certainly are different ways of doing it. And I think I'm being a little bit cautious here because. We spend a lot of time on on exit strategies, and I think it's one of uh, our uh, sort of uh, secret sources how we we do that. Uh, so uh, I probably can't be too specific as to precisely how we do it, but uh, but I think there is a lot. I'm I'm on the opinion that there is a lot to be a lot of work to be done, a lot of improvements to be found. Um, uh, you know, on on exits, even though uh, I also agree that uh, you know entries and risk management, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is possible is important as well. So, but we love the question, we love your comments and your support and and all of that. So, uh, but um, with that, I'm going to leave the questions for uh, for this week. I'm going to jump straight into a quick update on performance, uh, guys, if you don't mind. And then uh, if you have any final thoughts uh, afterwards, we can quickly do a uh, um, a discussion of that. But anyways, as we have indicated, it's been a good start to August for all the indices. Um, the beta 50 is up 1.56% for the month of August, up 10.22 for the year. SOCGEN CT index up 0.71 for the month, up 9.28 for the year. The trend index, uh, the one we probably should be tracked against, up 2.52 for the month, up 15.45 for the year. The short-term traders index up uh, 0.58, up 1.80 for the year. And the bridge alternatives index up 3.80, up 13.3 so far this year. Um... Of course, uh, we should not forget to just mention that we've got only a few spots left for our live event in Lower Manhattan. A um, couple of months, two and a half months from now, we would love to uh, to find the last few people who want to join us. Um, but uh, as it is, first come, first served. Um, do reach out to us uh, if you want to be part of it. I think it's going to be uh, a very unique um, two days uh, for those who come um, and also time to do some socialization and um, socializing, whatever. And, um, and of course, what the benefits of live event brings is that you form strong relationships with other peers that might come in uh, very useful uh, in the years to come. Um, you can um, find the details of the live event if you go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash live. Um, Jerry Moritz, uh, what else um, do we want to discuss on this Sunday? Saturday, actually, it is. 
I think Moritz is speaking, but I think you're muted, Moritz, if you're trying to speak. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I was, I was muted. <laughs> I saw this. your lips were moving, but I thought was, you'd normally speak a little bit. Yeah, loud, it's good right? now that we can see each other on that new um, on that new application. But no, I was saying I'm 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 fine. Nothing more to add. It was great to be back and uh, hear your voices. Looking forward to next time. Yes, same yeah. here. Good stuff. Um, if you want to support the podcast, of course you can. You can always leave a rating and review. Uh, they help a lot. Uh, and we've made it easier for you to do so. Uh, you can just check it out on toptradersonplug.com forward slash review. And don't forget to leave us a voicemail. That would be great fun if we had uh, a steady stream of those. Um, but anyways, thanks for spending your time with us today. And of course, we uh, love the loyalty you show us each week. And we very much look forward to being back with you on next week's edition of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to The Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.